And I, when I am lifted from the earth, will draw all something to myself. That's Jesus speaking in John 12, 32. Now, I'm Andy Jenkins. Welcome to my podcast. I'll come back and fill in that blank in just a moment. I promise you it's probably not what you think because there's um, there's this other thing going on. Sometimes when we translate the scripture from the original Greek and Aramaic to the English, that it seems kind of one thing in English, but it's a different thing when you get into Bible translation. Anyway, here's what I want you to do. Before we get into the content, I want to invite you to go to my website on the website, Jenkins.tv. You can just follow the link in the show notes. There's a couple of download links for you right there, as well as some other links. Number one is there's a link to get the entire Redemption eBook. You can get all of the information that I'm talking about uh, the last two weeks, plus this week, plus the next few weeks totally free. Got an ebook. You can download it, read ahead. You can read the rewind. You can study, dive deep, totally free. Uh, It'll email right to you. Number two is there's a Facebook group that I've got where I'm going in there live once a week, posting every day, but talking about really some practical everyday things, not necessarily the subject of this episode, but just some life stuff that's going to help you balance and grow in all the... important areas of life, your finances, your faith, your family, uh, what you what you do for fun, for recreation is just as important of an area as fitness, which is just as important of an area as the field, your, your career, what you do, what, what you spend your time uh, using to add value to the world around you, whether that's a nine to five job, whether that's an overnight job, whether that's a home-based job, whether that's working in the house, raising the kids and putting food on the table and doing all of the things it takes to manage to keep a household going well. That group, the link is in the show notes. I would love to meet you there. And that's really where I share some more stuff and do some Facebook lives once a week. All that information's there for you. Now, now let me get, let me get to the subject of this talk, which is yeah, you know, somebody told me again a couple weeks ago. They said th- these talks are kind of more like sermons. I- I'll give you that, except for it's not delivered in a church or it's not tossed out there like on a soapbox or something like that or a pedestal. It's just kind of floated out there and say, hey, let's discuss, let's learn, let's let's grow together. Um, today I want to talk about this idea of judgment, and it has everything to do with that first verse that I opened up this talk with. Uh, John 12, 32. Again, if if you're reading in the New Testament and it's one of those versions that has it, it would be red letter. Jesus is talking. He says, when I am lifted from the earth, I will draw all, insert the blank right there, to myself. Now, let me give you some background of that. The, The week of his death, Jesus told a handful of his disciples that the time of judgment had come and that the, quote, ruler of this world was about to be cast out. That's John 12, 31, the previous verse from the one I just quoted. Now, you might remember that in the previous episode of the podcast, I talked about that the first declaration of redemption uh, in Exodus 6, 6, it it promised that judgment was about to come. We, We didn't really play that part up, but in some sense, God actually told Moses, I will 
future tense, my people, and I'm going to do it with a mighty outstretched arm and with acts of judgment. So here's the quote, Exodus 6, 6, English Standard Version. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. So with power, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. The, the question then is really in that first redemption, which I said that first redemption is really our model of redemption now and what Jesus does on the cross. Like there's something that you and I learn in the Exodus story that really becomes the model for what we expect now in the Jesus story. Like, like it's all his story. And he's showing us something uh, in the first that he completes in the latter. Now, let, let me back up even before the Exodus story. Adam and Eve were originally given dominion of creation, but they handed it to Satan. You might remember the scripture, Genesis 1:28, where Adam's given authority over all things. And then Luke 4, 6, when Satan's tempting Jesus, he says, hey, all these things, all these earths, if you bow down, I'll give you all of this. It's all been given to me. And Jesus doesn't argue. But here's the scoop. After thousands of years of disorder, as Jesus faces the cross, it's really time to set things right. Judgment's about to happen at the cross. The one who took dominion from God's children, is about to be defeated. The, the enemy, Satan, is about to be stripped of his authority to quote what Paul says in Colossians 1 and Colossians 2. Now, after telling the disciples that the time of judgment was upon them, that's what he says in John 12, 31. Now is the time of the judgment, and the ruler of this world is about to be cast out. After telling them that, red letter, Jesus says to his disciples, he declares, and I, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all, fill in the blank right there, to myself, John 12, 32. Now, if, if you're reading the ebook, or you're looking at the show notes, or you're just listening, I, I left that blank right there on purpose, intentionally, because there's no word there in the original Greek sentence. Now, many modern translators of the Bible, they actually supply an italicized word to denote that. Uh, back in the day when I was a kid, I, I used to think the italicized words in the Bible were important, like they were being highlighted. I mean, after all, that's the way many of the methods we use in English occurs. We just kind of italicize something in print to highlight it. If, if we don't want to quite bold it, but we want it to stand out, that's what I do in some of the books. But if you if you read the textual notes at the beginning of your Bible, you discover that the translation committee, they're very forthright that they actually italicize words when they add them to the original text in order to make the sentence flow better. That, that's what the case is with John 12, 32. So Jesus actually said in the Greek language, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all to myself. I, I, I again, left the pause, the blank. And though that seems strange to us, to you and to me, it, it was a common speech pattern to them. Greek speakers didn't always supply nouns particularly when everyone already knew what they were discussing. So in that context, because of what we read in John 12, 31, now is the time of judgment. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. We know that in John 12, 32, the next verse, Jesus is talking about judgment. Now the most 
popular version of the verse in English, the most popular versions, I would say, they, they add the word men there. Therefore, like your Bible translation, it probably reads, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And I have heard teachers interpret this verse to mean that Jesus was communicating that when we exalt him, when we worship him, he brings people to himself naturally. And, and yes, that statement may be true. When we declare the great works of Jesus, people are intrigued. They come in close to hear what he's done for them. But that's not what this verse says. Even if the concept is true, this verse communicates something else entirely. The context of this verse is that Jesus anticipates and predicts his death on the cross. Uh, John writes this plainly, like in the next verse, John 12, 33. He, he says, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Now, remember, in the previous sentence, Jesus spoke about judgment. He said that the time for judgment had come, that the ruler of this world was going to be cast out. And then in the next verse, after saying, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all something to myself. In the next verse, John says, he did this to show what kind of death. Here's, here's what I think he's saying is Jesus is telling us that when he dies on the cross, he will take on every bit of judgment. Now's the time of judgment. I'm going to the cross, and when I go to the cross, I'm lifted up. I will take all of it, the judgment on myself. When I'm lifted up, I will draw all judgment to me, he promised. You see, your guilt, my guilt, all our condemnation, it would be on him. Or to say it another way, maybe just to kind of put it in everyday street language that someone might post on Facebook or Instagram or on just a, a chat thread, text thread. Um, Jesus took every bit of our judgment and condemnation on himself 2,000 years ago. Or to say it this way, judgment has already happened. Your judgment, my judgment, past tense, over done. Jesus took it on himself 2,000 years ago. When I be lifted up, I will draw all of, fill in your name, your judgment to me. That's John 12, 32. Now I know that, that seems like an odd verse because you, you and I have had it beaten into our heads that God judges the people that he's setting free. You've probably heard it from a typical altar call. Come, to, come down front. God is setting you free. If you don't come down, though, he's going to pour out his wrath on you. I mean, we, we push that concept so far that we believe that humans are innately evil, that when a baby is born, that there's somehow a deficit in the salvation, credit, debit, balance sheet. But the starting point of creation is good. You read Genesis 1. You read the refrain over and over and over when God creates one thing after another. Then he said, it's good. Now, th that said, let's look back at the story of Exodus. And I, I want to see what we can learn about redemption because, as I said in the previous episode, really that becomes our model. And it's impossible to miss the parallels between the Exodus story and the blood of the Lamb and the cross, which is the blood of Jesus, once you know to look for the parallels. And, and not only is the word used the same, redeem, but, but there are other parallels too. In fact, let me give you four parallels 
in this part of this episode, the four similarities between the judgment in Exodus and the judgment in the cross. And I, I think these will start helping flesh out the point about judgment and the fact that your judgment already happened. Like you're not anticipating a judgment yet to come. It's done. Okay, four truths here. Here's the first. First, first is this. Both events involve a lamb as the centerpiece of redemption. Now, if you read back in the Exodus story, Exodus 12.3, the Israelites were instructed to take a spotless lamb to roast it by spreading the animal apart on a wooden cross. It was the blood of the lamb that caused the angel of death to pass over their home. Centuries later, John the Baptist, he declared in public, while he's out there preaching, John 1.29, behold, about Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Even that last supper, when they were celebrating the Passover, the weekend before Jesus was betrayed, tried, executed, when Judas left their dinner to go betray Jesus, to turn him over to the authorities, the other 11 disciples, according to John, John 13, 29, they thought that he had gone to gather whatever things they needed for that feast. And, and remember, this wasn't just any feast. Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his disciples during that time. It was the same meal that Moses observed the night that all of Israel was set free. You can read more about that in Matthew 26, 17. And in Luke, Jesus actually says, I've longed to celebrate this Passover. Like it is, it is being denoted that that night would be the evening that a spotless lamb was put forth on behalf of the people. So specifically, what I'm saying is the disciples believed that Judas was leaving to get a Passover lamb for them. Now, tradition says that the lamb would be roasted over an open flame. It would be spread to a large skewer in the form of a cross. And don't miss the connection. Paul, Paul later writes... Uh, Maybe a decade later, he says in 1 Corinthians 5-7 that Christ is our, mine and your, Passover lamb. In other words, Jesus wasn't just any sacrificial lamb. John the Baptist wasn't just using language like, oh, he's a sacrificial animal. Like, Jesus, like that would be enough. Jesus isn't just any animal, though. Like, he is the Passover lamb. And in describing Jesus this way, Paul provides us with a specific link between that Exodus story of redemption and the cross where we're redeemed by the blood of the lamb. We're freed. That's what the word means by the blood of the lamb. Let me give you point number two of four, maybe point number two of four comparisons. The second one is this. The hyssop branch, it played a significant role in both stories. Uh, you can find that if you look into Exodus 12, 22. The Israelites took the hyssop branch and they spread the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of their home in the shape of a cross. The blood on the branch. The ancients believed that hyssop was a cleansing fragrance. It warded off evil spirits and it really enveloped, it encircled people with a sense of forgiveness. Uh, this may be why in Psalms 51.7, David prays after his adultery with Bathsheba and then the subsequent murder of her husband, of, of which he was guilty on both counts. He prays, cleanse me with hyssop, then I'll be clean. It was, they believed 
something that would push off guilt, shame, regret, uh, overwhelming grief. Now, John tells us in John 19, 29, that the soldier raised, get this parallel, a hyssop branch to Jesus when he said, from the cross, I thirst. That, that branch would have been stained with blood too because it brushed Jesus' face. Now, now, you and I, we, we read details like that, and I think we often miss them. I, I did for years. In fact, I, I first heard that idea, that concept. It, it was preached by a friend of mine, Rick Owsley. He was at the time the pastor at the Church of Brook Hills in Birmingham, Alabama. I, I remember it. He preached it in the sermon series, Seven Words of Christ from the Cross, back around Easter of 2000. And, and by then, like I, I was even working in a church. I'd been through seminary. I'd grown up in a church. I was at that point in my faith journey, uh, almost five, six years in, I had never gotten this concept. I had just brushed over. But, but someone living 2,000 years ago who understood both stories, the Exodus story, the Jesus cross story, that they would remember that that hyssop branch was used to spread the blood of the Exodus lamb over the doorpost of their home, also in the form of a cross. Do you see? Well, well the third the third parallel, the third comparison is this. Both events, the Exodus lamb and the Jesus story, Jesus the Lamb of God, both are events of total redemption. Not partial, but total, and each one is received by faith. Now, if you remember this, you remember that back then in Exodus, uh, a people who were completely enslaved, they, they become our model of redemption. They were delivered in an instant, in a moment. They, they went from completely bound to totally free, almost just, I mean, in, in a moment. And here's the comparison, is that the blood of Jesus becomes our vehicle of redemption today. By his blood, a people, us, you, me, who are enslaved, we find ourselves completely delivered in an instant that other people, us, you, me, too, go from completely bound to totally free in a moment, in an instant. In other words, that Exodus story, and I keep referring back to this, almost, it seems sometimes repetitive to me as I've been doing this now, I think three separate talks, this is the third one in the series, it, it seems kind of repetitive, but it, it like really bears, it really bears rehearsing it, going over it, looking at it again, because Exodus is the prototype. It's a real story that shows us what we can expect from the cross and Jesus' work on our behalf. It's not just a disconnected earlier story in the Bible, one that happened a few thousand years before the cross. Exodus is what happens to each of us as we awaken to the redemption, to the freedom that Jesus offers us. And, and the story, it's not primarily something or about something that we obtain when we die. It's about an ongoing encounter with our Creator in this present life. Like, it redeems us now. The fourth and the final observation is this, that, and this one's huge, that the single determining factor in the entire Exodus story, it was the Lamb, period. 
It didn't matter who was in the house. If you read the story back from Exodus 12, as long as the blood of the lamb marked the doors in the shape of the cross, that house was covered and the angel of death would pass by. It didn't matter what they'd done that day, how good or how bad they had been according to anyone's standard, even their own standard. As long as the blood of the lamb marked the doors in the shape of the cross, they were covered. I mean, you draw the parallel even farther, their socioeconomic status, their race, their education, their health, their calling, their vocation, their job, even their, this this one seems sometimes controversial, their sexual orientation. And, and just insert, you know, may, maybe like a yikes, or, or like what, what was that really in there? I mean, there, there was nothing that mattered. Like, all of these things were irrelevant. We, we want to put all these disclaimers or these innuendos or these, well, you know, if it wasn't, you know, or except for. But no, as, as long as the blood of the Lamb marked the doors in the shape of the cross in the Exodus story, the angel of the death was going to pass over. And I know some of that information and what it infers could could make you a bit uncomfortable. Sometimes when I look at it, it even makes me really uncomfortable to say it, but you read the story again and you'll see that the things that we usually make big deals, they aren't even mentioned. The only thing the angel of death looked for was the blood of the lamb. You can read that, Exodus 12, 13, Exodus 12, 23. And as far as anything else goes, anything, nothing else was even mentioned. The the single factor related to successful redemption was the sacrifice, not the sacrificer. It was the fact of the blood of the lamb, not, not the person that was in the house that the blood of the lamb was covering. So the, so the lamb took their death, really, literally, because without the blood of the lamb, the firstborn in the house would die. And the blood of that lamb in Exodus facilitated their redemption, which means the blood of that lamb or just the lamb, it took the judgment, all of the judgment. Now, think with me for a moment. Do you you remember what Jesus told the disciples? It was in that verse, John 12, 32, that I began this entire episode, this talk with. He said this, now, now, this moment, as, as he's facing the cross, now is the time of judgment 2,000 years ago. And if I am lifted up, I will draw all of the judgment to myself, all, all of it. And again, that was all of the judgment on Jesus 2,000 years ago. And here's what that means. Judgment has already occurred. You weren't on trial. I wasn't on trial. The person down the street, the person that offended you, the person that thinks you offended them, not on trial. Jesus, the lamb, was on trial. And because of that, and because of his blood, judgment literally passed over you, me, and the others involved. I want you to notice this too. This is really kind of a footnote. So it kind of, you know, I hate putting footnotes in when I'm talking because it kind of breaks up the flow. But then again, it's kind of like, oh, as I'm thinking this, so you you might be thinking the same question too. This is one thing I want you to notice that judgment happened first and then freedom came in the Exodus story. 
So the, the lamb is judged, the blood goes on the doorpost, and then all of the people after that are declared to be free, and they walk towards the Red Sea, through the Red Sea, and into freedom. And then they declare that their redemption has happened. Now, if you look at the story of Jesus, Jesus says, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to take all judgment upon myself. Jesus takes all the judgment upon himself. He's, he's crucified on the cross, and then he resurrects on the third day. He resurrects on our behalf. He's crucified on our behalf. He resurrects on our behalf. And you, you notice this, judgment happened first in both stories, and then in both stories, freedom came afterwards. No one walked in freedom. No one experienced their destiny until judgment first came. Here's, here's maybe my observation is sometimes the church gets that message backwards. We, we tell free people to clean up, fix up, shape up, you know, or ship out. We tell them to demonstrate their freedom, prove they've been transformed. And then after they prove it, they can acknowledge Jesus as Lord. After they prove it, they can become one of us. After they clean up, they can join the church. After they show that all of the other things that they were struggling with, all the, you know, I mean, just fill in the blank of all whatever sin issue that is important to you or is important to the people like you or, what, or, or important to the people that have thrown stuff at you. If you've been accused and shamed, like insert whatever it is, pe- people say, well, if they clean all that up, then they can become like this. And here's... The biblical truth is that that thinking is backwards. People don't walk in freedom until they're free. Uh, You know, yeah, judgment's occurred, so that means you're free to be the person that you're designed to be. But redemption isn't something that God gives you as a reward for acting like a free man or a free woman. Redemption is something that he grants you in order for you to experience freedom. The freedom comes first. The follow-through comes afterwards. Behavior is, in other words, behavior is the result of redemption, not the cause. Now, that leads me to another Maybe another Bible word that we need to discuss while we're talking about judgment and behavior and those sorts of topics. A lot of people in the church, they they believe this. They believe it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. That's the word, to convict people. That is to judge them and make them feel guilty, to make them sense that they're about to be judged and to put them under this cloak of guilt, shame, condemnation. Even 2,000 years after Jesus has completed his work, some church people still argue this. Well-intended Bible teachers and pastors and leaders, they, they even pull verses to prove their point. Like John 16, 8, they say, well, when he comes, meaning the Holy Spirit, he will convict, there's the word, he will, will, it's definitive. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So a lot of people read this and they go, well, judgment already happened. Like, that's that's what I just said. But then they get to this verse and they go, wait, wait, the Holy Spirit's judging me, convicting me. Well, let, let me maybe show you another angle on that. The theologian that I read a lot of when I was in college, Leonard Sweet, 
and uh, another co-author that he he writes with a lot, Frank Biola. They they write this in their book, The Jesus Manifesto. They they observe this. Here's the quote: Some preachers need a travel agent to handle all the guilt trips they put on God's people. Okay, pause. That's where you you could be thinking, "Yep, been there, done it." Got the t-shirt, bumper sticker, coffee mug, whatever. Amen, right? Let me me continue. Here, quote continues. But there's a big difference between putting a guilt trip on Christians and unveiling Christ to them. When Christ is presented with power, the Spirit of God will undoubtedly convict, okay, so there's our word, will undoubtedly convict those who are walking in contradiction to their new nature. But, Holy Spirit conviction and man-induced guilt and condemnation are two very different things. Okay, so what we've got there is maybe two men who are saying, just maybe, perhaps, you and I might have looked at this idea of conviction the wrong way. Like we may be putting a human definition on a spiritual, supernatural, eternal Reality. So, so that said, let's just talk about what conviction means. That's going to help clear this up. After all, if if the Holy Spirit convicts us, what the Scripture just said, which these two theologians that I I, I read and trust, they actually agreed with, it makes sense to understand what this convicting thing is, right? Uh, Pastor Andrew Farley he writes about one of the common usages of the word that gets us tripped up theologically. Here's a quote from his book, The Naked Gospel. And by naked, he's just trying to pull off all the religion and frills and legalism. And you know, by the way, religion's not a bad word. He's just trying to pull off all the all the extraneous stuff and, and get to as much as possible. I mean, we never quite can, but but get to the meat, the heartbeat of the message. Here's his quote. Convict, that, that's our word. Convict means to find guilty. Within a judicial system, conviction is followed by sentencing and then punishment. Inside the word conviction is the term we usually reserve for a person who is incarcerated, a convict. So after that quote, Farley then asked the question. He says, so should the verb convict be used to describe interaction between the Holy Spirit and the children of God? Like, is God trying to convict and then punish his people And his answer is this, probably not, because Jesus took the conviction and punishment after getting the judgment already in the past 2,000 years ago. So that that leads me to this. There's, There's another word or another definition for the word convict that better communicates maybe what's happening here. Convict also means this. Convict means to convince. So if someone really believes something, they might say, this is my conviction. You, you've probably heard that. You've probably said that. And when you do that, when I do that, we're not really casting a judgment as to guilt or innocence. We're just saying, I really sincerely believe. So just a couple of examples. Like Some people have a conviction, that's the word, have a conviction that natural health is better than pharmaceuticals. Other people have a conviction that they would actually be dead without man-made drugs. They're grateful for the prescriptions they have that help them stay alive. You you see how that works? 
Here's, here's another example. Uh, some, some moms or dads, they have a conviction that they should stay at home with their children. Others have a conviction that they should go to work outside of the home and add to the family's bottom line financially. See, there's another example. Let, let me give you a third. Some parents have a conviction that kids should be spanked. I mean, goodness, I was spanked all the time when I was a kid, right? Uh, now other parents have a conviction that kids should simply be redirected. Now, all those examples said, I tried intentionally just to kind of play neutral in all of them so you really wouldn't know where I stood. I would say you probably have convictions on each of those three. You probably were agreeing or disagreeing with one side or the other. You, in fact, you probably have a list of convictions, things you believe that are important to you about many subjects. If, if we sat down for 10 or 15 minutes and started talking about them, you may even try to convince, that is, to convict me of the beauty and depth of your position, even doing so graciously, not with animosity, not with judgment, not with looking down upon me, just trying to show me and illustrate a more beautiful truth, a way of life to me. Now think about it like this. People, people try to convict you every day, every single day, particularly advertisers. They attempt to persuade. That's another synonym there. They, they attempt to persuade, to convict, to persuade you to see things their way. They want to convince you to buy. Well, I think theologically, spiritually, rather than convincing you that you are guilty, the Holy Spirit convinces, persuades. I mean, let's just say it convicts. That's what the scripture says. Persuades, convicts you that you are righteous. Now, here's where I get that. Put the pieces together. Okay, number, number one, Jesus already 2,000 years ago, took all judgment on himself. He said, if I am lifted up, John 12, 32, I will take all judgment on myself because John 12, 31, now is the time of judgment. In John 12, 33, he said this to illustrate the means by which he was about to die on the cross. Okay, so you see that? Jesus took the judgment on himself. Number two, here, here's where I get that. Number, number two is the Holy Spirit takes what is His, what is Jesus's, and He gives it to you, constantly reminding you, convincing, persuading, convicting you that sin has been handled and you are righteous, that you're relationally in right standing with God. That's John 16, 12. You see, the Holy Spirit persuades you about righteousness, the Holy Spirit doesn't do this by giving you a pile of bad things you've done or a checklist of good deeds that you need to do. Rather, the Holy Spirit, He does this by convincing, by, let me use the word again, by convicting you, by urging you, by persuading you that you are now free to be the person you were created to be. Remember, judgment happens first and then people walk in freedom. Jesus was judged 2,000 years ago. Now you're free to live free. Looking back at the cross, Paul writes that Jesus actually, here's, here's the quotation from Colossians 2.15, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put the rulers and authorities to open shame. In other words, like just another layer of this, at the cross, Jesus, he took all of our judgment. 
That, that included valuations of things we've done legally or morally wrong, as well as judgments about us that other people carry, which is really just kind of the power of shame that other people put on us about anything. At the cross, Jesus also took every curse we had carried. That, that includes the stigma and consequences of things we've done, the stigma and consequences of things that have been done to us, the labels that we carry, the, the names that people call you because of where you've been, what you've done. I mean, some of you listening, you know exactly what I'm talking about. At the cross, Jesus also took all the shame associated with our guilt, with all those curses, the things that would make us be afraid, want to hide, be timid, not move in public, not walk in freedom. And because of that, Paul says that the enemy is now, Colossians 2.15, stripped of any power to condemn you, stripped of any capacity to curse you, stripped of any right to shame you. And, and I know there are people all the time that, you know, they throw this stuff up and they go, well, I'm just playing the devil's advocate. And when they do that, really they're aligning themselves, advocating on the wrong side because First John says that your advocate stands before that accuser with you, one with you before the Father and actually claims you as your own. And when he does that, your qualifications are irrelevant. He's already taken your judgment. You're now free. And that means that you now carry a new identity. Do you see? My prayer for you in this moment is that the Lord would bless you. The Lord would keep you. The Lord would be gracious and shine his great face of favor on you. That you would see, you would sense, you would feel the reality that judgment isn't something that you're waiting for in the future, that it's not something to fear, that it's actually something to applaud because judgment already happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus already took all of the judgment that would ever come your way 2,000 years ago. And now, just as the children of Israel experienced judgment with their lamb, and then after judgment came, they were able to live free as a result of the judgment. You're not living clean or living right now to avoid future judgment, to avoid a future condemnation or some reckoning down the road. May you experience the freedom now that judgment has occurred and that that judgment has now freed you to live free. You see, grace, peace. I'll talk to you again soon.